All right, Ishan, welcome back to the DFI podcast where we go deep on Web3 infrastructure and services. How are you today? I'm doing great. Always excited to have this podcast. It's one of the highlights of my week every week. It's my, same here, same here. It's good. We got to get it out. And now it's on a Monday too, so we can get it while the week is fresh. Yeah. It's good timing. So today we've got a couple things to get into that I think are particularly interesting we have not talked about. One is go to market for Web3 folks. And the second is some talks on progressive decentralization, starting yeah. out more centralized and moving in a more decentralized way. Um, should we frame up the uh, the go to market conversation first? Yeah, let's do it. So, you know, you and I have both spent a lot of time, you know, from a product perspective, from a sales engineering perspective, and go to market and web two, and we we have some experience of what that's like. More recently, now we're doing the same things in web three, but there are a lot of differences. There are sometimes DAOs instead of customers. There are sometimes anonymous people instead of uh, companies to sell to, and and navigating the buyers and all this is just a very different world, but we're both sort of involved in different ways. Um, maybe the, the way to kind of chunk this up is to start with thinking about like top of funnel, like how do you think about attracting interest, community, prospects, and otherwise, and then we can get into sort of moving, once you have that pipeline, moving it towards a close, if there even is a close sometimes. For some yeah, I mean... I'm going to ask you, well, after that, that, you know what I really want to hear is like how you differentiate um, like actual sales strategies for like Web 2 versus Web 3. So when I was at Zesty AI, we were a classic uh, B2B SaaS company selling to enterprise, right? And so it was make a list of all the companies, rank them by order in TAM, and also see if we had a connection at that company, right? Get a warm introduction. It's very similar to the fundraising process that I'm doing right now. And it was, okay, like go, um, go pitch our product, prove that our product was better than what they needed, uh, better than what they had, better than what they were looking for, and prove that, uh, that we could either help them make a lot of money or help them save a lot of money, right? Like when you, sp when you do a B2B enterprise, and I am sure you have so much experience in this, so you can talk in more detail, but the two things that they care about the most is how, how much money can you make me and how much money can you save me? And um, they always care about how much money can you make me more than how much, can, how much money can you save me, right? Unless something is, some cost is so big that it com if, you, if you get rid of that cost, it changes like your corporate strategy. So, uh, and then et cetera, right? You, you do a pilot, you prove that you are good, you build relationships with that company, and then eventually you negotiate on a price and volume and usage, and, and, then, you, and then you stay in touch with them and make sure they have the best customer success or service that they can have so that when it times for renewal, they you know, give you more money for more seats or more usage. Would you say that's kind of accurate in your B2B SaaS experience? Definitely. Yeah, it definitely has to come down to one of those two things at the end of the day. And it's interesting, like uh, one of the things that I was maybe even more challenging about B2B SaaS is sometimes the buying group is very diverse. You may mm -hmm. have a technical champion in one team and they may have to influence person has budget in a different team and they may have to influence someone that makes a decision in a third team. And so the buyer committee can be super complicated. But the thing I think it's most similar about the, the two processes is, is thinking about it in terms of pain. How does it address a certain pain that they have that that single person, we used to call them a, a champion, a person mm -hmm. who's willing to go to bat for you, a person who's willing to uh, sell for you when you're not around, a person who has uh, power in the organization. 
what kind of pain do they have in, in their world today? And their pain might be that their uh, infrastructure costs are too expensive. Their pain might be that they are missing out on, on revenue and they need to grow revenue. Their pain might be other things, might be willing to their like reputation or, or any other criteria. But that was always how we would we would start like framing the, the, the conversation, because if we didn't do that, if we didn't frame it in, in the sense of something that was urgent for some individual, we would get put into the friend zone, the nice to have zone. Mm-hmm. And then that's the yes. worst from a go to market perspective, because yeah. they might meet with you and they might respond to you or they might not. They might start ghosting you, but they won't yeah. tell you why. No one will tell you outright that you're just not that urgent for them. Yeah, exactly. So then um, it's like, okay, after that, now we're doing stuff in Web3. But interestingly, our product is mostly for current Web2 users. So like when you're building a DeFi protocol, you're very clearly a Web3 product with a Web3 user base, right? Uh, I feel that like, maybe you can talk a little bit more about like uh, building a Web3 go-to-market strategy for Web3 users. But for us, we're actually building a Web3 product to onboard Web2 users. Now, we're going to have some Web3 users, but it's not like, and, and our and our product is like, you know, blockchain and crypto and token powered. But, you know, for us, a lot of our customers are going to be people who have built uh, traditional Web2 software. So for us, we've been doing something similar in this, like, this process that I explained in the B2B SaaS, where we go out and see where are our customers, how do we pitch to them, what are the mistakes we're making in our pitch, how do we make our pitch better so that we can help them solve their pain point with our Mm -hmm. software Mm -hmm. and get them onboarded and start using our product. And for some people, the Web3 component is going to be super interesting and they'll play around with it. For other people, they're like, I don't want a Web3 experience when I'm building this develop, when I'm, you know, where our, our customers are developers. So when I'm building this, when I'm building my software, I want a Web2 experience, um, but I want it at the cost that you're offering and, and not at the cost that the other people are offering. Our go-to-market has been a more traditional like Web2 go-to-market as of right now, partly also because we don't have like some of like, we don't have a token right now and we're only going to launch, we don't know if we're going to launch a token, but if we do, it's only going to be when like we have proven product market fit and we are doing really well as a company, right? We're not trying to do some like token scam or like pump and dump or whatever. We want to build a company that lasts 10 years and like we're building one protocol first, but like hopefully we'll build adjacent protocols. Um, so that's kind of been my experience for the for the current company that we're building. But, you know, as someone who's at a company that's more, let's say, like like bigger and a later stage in the journey than we are, I'd love to hear your experience about, like, how are you selling a Web3 product to Web3 customers? I think the, the, the similarity is that we have some opinion or some hypothesis about what that pain is that we're going to solve, even though it's predominantly for DAOs or Web3 projects and things like that. And, um, you know, what's funny is like, um, it's very tempting. I, I noticed a lot of folks like the goal will be to like go right into pitching the software, which is important. You know, you need to get feedback on, on the pitch and you need to get a sense of like, does it, does it resonate? The other thing that I really like to do, even, uh, even before that, which I think you guys probably did this as well, is more user interviews to get a sense of learning as much as possible and validating that hypothesis, you know, before we go into pitch mode, because I have been in sales roles in the past where I was pitching something that either I didn't know 
as much as my customers about. And after I would try to pitch them and, and be authoritative, they would say, actually, you're wrong because X, Y, and Z. And so we're, it's like you're playing this game where you're saying, you know, I, I'm coming in as a, con as a consultant. Like, I understand your business, and here is a better way to do your business. And the only way you can play that game is if you actually know as much as those people or more, and you can offer like some perspective of value. You have to walk into the, the conversation saying, actually, the best way that I like to walk into the conversation is just to ask questions, ask as many mm -hmm. questions as possible. Because if I've met with 50 or 100 people in this situation, I need to ask like, you know, what is your business model? You know, what are you currently using for this tech stack? And, and how much does it cost X, Y, and Z? And once I know those things, then I, I can, I know enough that my pitch should be straight on. And hopefully I'm going to teach you something that you didn't know already. So I think there's just so many similarities between the two. The only difference I noticed like in, in the Web3 space is that the Web3 um, user base is a lot of times people that are earlier in their careers, both on the selling and on the, on the usage side. So whatever, you know, in Web2, there's this traditional hierarchy of sales and marketing roles, and they have existed <laughs> almost, almost ossified because they're very well known. If you go hire a sales VP, that person has 10 years of experience playing the role of a salesperson. If you're pitching to a buyer, they have 10 years of experience listening to sales pitches and knowing how to react to those. But in the Web3 world, these are people earlier in their careers. And so they're kind of figuring this role out. Like you don't have that, you don't have that clean cut series of roles and I'm going to pitch you and you're going to push back and we're going to ask to meet your boss. And that. So it's much more fluid. It's much more of like mm -hmm. an open sandbox where people are figuring it out in a certain sense. I mean, I think that's a good thing, right? Like new business model, new products, new technology. There, may, there should be a new way of educating a customer and convincing a customer that your product is better than your competitors and they should use it, right? And when you're selling B2B, like B2B is so well-defined right now. It's like, you, it's easy to be like, this is the best strategy, but like, it's going to be interesting to see like what the best strategy is when you are selling completely different types of products. Yes, yes. And, you know, speaking of like, you know, best strategies, one thing that I also see coming up a bit, a bit is reputation. Because crypto is an interesting industry where on the one hand, every most of it is open source. You can see the source code, you can see where the token value lies. On the other hand, so many projects go from, you know, young and they're just a white paper to to launched on mainnet so fast. And there's a history because it's not regulated of, of companies that have taken malicious activities, they've taken advantage of their community, they've rug pulled people in the past. Mm -hmm. There's this reputation thing that exists for Web3 projects. People want to work with other projects that have higher reputation and they don't want to work with projects that have low reputation. Whereas in the B2B world, it's almost like, you know, if your product works, your reputation still matters, but there's not the same sense of we're going to try to work with people that have a strong brand or reputation to yeah. avoid rug pull. Because you can't really rug pull in Web 2 yeah. the same, as yeah. easily, per se. Yeah. Also, I think in Web 2, the reputation is actually when you're doing a deal with someone. Like in B2B SaaS, the reputation is the person personal reputation that you build as um, a company when you're trying to sell to your customer, right? So like, how did I help this person? Did I make them look good to their boss? Did I help them understand, did, did, did I prove to them that I'm building a better product, right? Um, did their team, their technical team or their, you know, finance team come back and, ver you know, verify this? And did we work with them on the issues that they're having? So to make our deal look the most presentable, right? To, to the champion. Whereas in Web3, Right now, there's like product reputation that we have to worry about, right? 
is a crypto is this because this is a crypto project is this even reputable right has this company seen hacks before or scams or rug pulls right if they haven't done anything bad are they prepared to like at least you know are are they are, are they are doing the minimum to make sure that like i feel secure are they are they doing audits with you know the best audit companies are they doing stuff to making sure that their protocol is secure stuff like that right so i i totally agree one thing that i really really like that you said is that you go into your sales conversations or your conversations with your customers being like oh let me learn more about your business and let me ask you a lot of questions i and i seem to 100% agree with that and it works well for us because the more we know what our product does and we know how we're better than our competitors but the more we ask the questions the more um we can have a natural conversation with our customer and just kind of talk about what we offer and how they think about things and it's a one i think it's a lot better conversation because the customer can really quickly figure out if you're real or not because if they're an expert and you're you're not an expert they'll be like these guys are blowing air right but if you both are experts you have like you have a bonding moment where you where the customer is like these guys are legitimate or semi legitimate right so i um and then also if like say we're an expert in what what we're trying to sell we're able to help them understand what we do and why we're better in a like uh, in a more conversational manner than being like this is our slide deck and this is why we're better Yes, yes, 100%. That's like a very easy like junior mistake is here's my slide deck, I'm going to take it through. Figure out for yourself if you want to buy our product or not. It's the yeah. opposite. The, the opposite yes. is so much better because their time is extremely valuable. You have to show that you respect their time. Your time is valuable because you you only want to pitch to the people that you're going to sell to. Mm -hmm. So if you can qualify them in or out as early as possible and find out they're with uh, you know, another solution, they they are spending the right amount they don't need they don't really have pains and that's great that's like let's go our separate ways i'm not going to try to sell you because yeah. you're not going to buy anyways yeah and they're, they they value that as well but you're right credibility and all that like come into the conversation as well um and uh and, and you can just you can get to value much more quickly the thing i like about this about this like discovery first approach is that people love talking about themselves and their own issues that's our that's our natural predilection if you can you know, talk in, in terms that people care about and what's going on with them? It's a it's a it's a very trust engendering way to start the conversation. Yes, agreed. It's like we're like talking about like little life hacks to like you know that make people feel good. But like I think most of it is coming from like just be authentic um, about your product and what you can do and how you can help them. And if you can't help them, it's okay. Be like, hey, I'm sorry. You know, your whatever you're working is great. I'll come back to you when, you know, when you have a bigger problem or when we're so much better that like, you'll want to talk to us again. Right. Um, yes. And I think, that, I think that's like, uh, people really appreciate that. I really appreciate it. So I was like, you know what, your system works out really good and you clearly, I clearly can't help you, but I might be able to help you in the future. So let's stay in touch. That, that's it. And that, that's what I think is so, so important about that approach is that if you can take that approach and you can land enough deals to bring on your product, then you clearly are building a product that has value in the market. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate because, you know, like B2B SaaS is a very busy space. And for every problem that exists, there's probably 10 viable vendors that are trying to sell into that problem. So if there's 10 viable vendors and they don't have, they, they didn't design their product with enough differentiators, sometimes they might try to make up for it by 
pushy sales folks or tactics that come off as a little bit uncomfortable. But you, the reality is you can't make up for it there. You can't make yeah. up for a lack of, of value with sales tactics. I think, first of all, agreed. And I also think that like, you know, sales is such like a, like a dirty word. It's like, oh my God, like someone's trying to convince me that, you know, or they're trying to be, they're trying to sell me something in like a shady way or in a sleazy way. But I think what the best sales people actually do and why I've come to appreciate it is everyone only has so much time in their lives, right? And if I'm at a company and I'm, you know, trying to make something better at my company, I don't have all the time in the world to do research on all the 10 competitors, right? So what a really good salesperson actually does is they build an authentic relationship with someone who might want to use their product because they're having a specific pain point that my product can solve. And they help them learn about the different ways that this problem that they have can be solved. And one of those ways is the product that that salesperson is selling, right? And I think that's what the best salespeople do is they help their customer solve the problem that maybe their customer didn't know that there, there was a solution that existed because they're too busy to re spend all their time researching all the different products out there. So true. So true. It's almost like instead of sales, it should be called um, helping people buy yeah. something, whether it's your product or not. Because if you're helping people buy, you're helping cut them down their time to make the decision that's best for them and their organization because they're part of a, a bigger decision, organization-wide decision, then that's really what it's about. You yeah. can't, especially in complicated sales It's so levels. funny. These big companies, they call customer success, like anything that's post-sales customer success. I think what it should be called is it's called customer success and then have like a pre-sale and a post-sale arm, right? And it's functionally the same thing as what it is today, but the messaging is so different. Oh, I'm VP of sales. No, you're, you're VP of customer success, whether you're doing, doing pre-sales or post-sales, right? Because... Also, and again, this is B2B SaaS, so they're different business models, but in B2B SaaS and in all business models, you have a churn rate. And the better your post-sales team is on making sure your customers are happy, the lower your churn rate, right? Uh, and so like, what, what all of these should be really called is it should be called customer success from the beginning. And then you should have like, okay, we're a pre-sales team and we're a post-sales team. Yes. But for some reason, the nomenclature has been messed up. No, you're right. It's funny because uh, David Sachs, one of our favorite uh, commentators on <laughs> SaaS, uh, is, is really leading the way in terms of those metrics, like the churn ratios and the net retention and all those things, because those matter. You can't build a company selling a product once and then your people don't like it and they, they run away. But there's been this history of incentive structures, like the, the sales incentive has always been you know, land a, a bunch of big deals, you blow out your number, you make a ton in commissions. And then post sales has always been more on like salary or hitting OKRs and things like mm -hmm. that, or maybe a little bit tied to net retention and things like that. But like, I think that as people are getting smarter about those statistics, like net retention, it's going to hopefully you'd see sort of a smoothing out because onboarding the customer is one thing to your point, but for the comp company to be successful, it really is about bigger metrics beyond just that first sale. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, I think like generally customer success or exec sales executive leadership should be like their salary or, or comp should be based on both how many sales can they get and how many customers do they keep. And it should smooth out at like the IC level, like the individual contributor level also. But at some point also like people who make deals happen and people who uh, keep customers from leaving 
for another competitor, those skill sets are completely different. Uh, and not completely mm-hmm. different, but they're like 50% different, right? Uh, yeah. And maybe for a few people like US, they're the same because you're amazing. <laughs> but for, I, I meet a lot of people who they can't do both, you know? Uh, yeah, how do you scale an organization? You're right, it's different personality types and different experiences. That's totally fair. Well, no, I, I appreciate it. But yeah, you're right. There is, there's like, you know, hands-on, you know, functional technical people. And there's people that will go and knock on doors and get told no many, you know, hundreds of times and still keep knocking on those doors. Yeah. Which not always the same thing. So but how do you think of... about customer acquisition? Like what, what are, you know, in a Web3 world with tokens and crypto economics and blockchain and DeFi, like what are, I guess, what are some key different things that you're seeing and what are some things that you're doing differently than you did before? Well, one interesting thing that's very different is the, um, it, it almost can become like a B2C play. Like hypothetically, uh-huh. you know, if, if, a, if a company is trying to bring on a large number of developers or if the token economics have an impact on, on a given project, then it's not just, you know, one-on-one partnership sales, like where you have an organization you're trying to onboard and move them through the pipeline from like, you know, initial stages to, to some close. It's almost like a broadcast, like uh, open-ended marketing play. So then that changes the way you, you treat your funnel because, you know, you're trying to attract a much larger audience of folks. And then your acquisition play becomes much more uh, B2C. And actually B2C is not my strong suit. I don't have a lot of experience in B2C. So I'm sort of learning how to play this, you know, like discord is a big part of it. Telegram communities, things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, It's a different slice of marketing. So are you doing both B2C and B2B and I guess a third B2B2C or are you mostly doing B2C and B2B? Hmm. Definitely B2B. Definitely spend a lot of time in B2B right now. And then there are aspects of new crypto projects that are somewhat B2C at times, particularly if you're trying to manage a large community. Um, let me try to pick an example project that launched recently. Um, something that's, that's worth, um, maybe even like Filecoin, just take that as a hypothetical example. You know, Filecoin has a lot of constituents. Filecoin has the, um, the, the storage providers, like the service providers, you know, groups of folks. Mm-hmm. It has the Filecoin token holders itself, you know, needs to retain those, those token holders in order to maintain the value of its, of its organization. So it has to think about both of those markets at the same time. Maybe it depends a little bit on like whether you're going to launch a token or whether you already have a token launched. You're trying to manage, you know, the liquidity around that token. Um, but I've seen I've seen different approaches. I've seen people use traditional CRM to keep track of the uh, the smaller partnership sales aspects when it's like when you're trying to you care about individual organization conversations. But then, like from a marketing perspective, like an inbound marketing perspective, like you could use. There are new tools that are being built for Discord and Telegram community management. And there's lots of agencies like Hype and Serotonin that are built specifically to manage those communities. But I haven't seen a lot of good products yet to manage conversion of those communities. And also, it's hard to measure conversion because if you're, if you're okay, we're going to launch Braves Token, let's say, you know, next mm-hmm. week, we're about to launch Braves Token and, and that's going to be big. Let's say you, you know, you have a bunch of marketing events, you have a website launch, you have advertising, you have a Discord community. When they go and buy and they add that to their wallet, traditional tools like Salesforce and, and HubSpot, which were built for B2C marketing, like large, you know, large scale marketing, they don't have the concept of a wallet. They don't know if that token was purchased per se. So attributing your marketing activity to the ultimate, you know, conversion of that person is still a gap. 
in the space. Ah, I, see. I think. Unless makes unless sense. they're maybe the community will tell us which projects they're using to manage this. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm curious because I'm I feel like you know you have a lot more experience than I do um, in this in this area, right? I feel like we'll be doing some interesting stuff, but in six months or three months. Um, what have you found like the most interesting or most different about selling to, uh, let's just say, uh, like crypto or Web3 B2B companies than you did before in Web2 B2B? Hmm. Uh, one thing that is very different, I, I would say actually, honestly, a lot of it strikes me as being very similar. But one thing that's very different is the tokenomics aspect. Mm -hmm. in the sense that value can flow in very different ways. And so everything is basically tied in Web2 to like closing the deal and recognizing revenue and situations like that. But in this world, that's not the case necessarily. The value of a Web3 project accrues when people start using your platform or using your token. And that could be months, many months delayed. It could be totally uh, you know, indirect to whatever they, when they actually chose to use your platform. So recognizing a conversion or a person onboarded or a deal closed is very different in this new space. I think we're still trying to figure out how to measure the two. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, um, and maybe you can't share the exact metrics, maybe you can, but like, have you guys thought of new ways or have you thought of like different ways of measuring? I mean, obviously there's no different ways of measuring revenue, but do you have different metrics of measuring whether your um, product is working whether your marketing you know where your marketing conversions are working um or or stuff like that well so yeah you certainly can't measure revenue in a sense there's a couple different interesting things that, that you can use in place of that one is you can use um informal commitments that folks can make to say hey you know we're gonna we're gonna work with your product we're gonna issue co-marketing statements that you know, Sean and Wes are going to work with Brave Coin. That's going to be our, our next token launch. And then you at least establish um, soft commitments for the organizations to work together. And that has its own benefits in terms of reputation and brand, which are sort of like, you know, either um, positive sum or maybe they're negative sum, depending on you have to be careful, you know, who you partner with. But once that happens, you know, going into it, one of the things we used to do actually back at Google Cloud was we would make estimates about usage because at Google Cloud, we could not sell commitments at the time to uh, for a customer to use the software over a period of time. They, it, they were soft commitments, more or less. If they said, we're going to buy a million dollars worth of credits as a commitment to Google Cloud, unlike AWS, they could not pay for that up front and retire that money immediately. It had to happen over a period of time. And if they didn't use it, there was no nothing holding them to it. So we had to make estimates of what their, their usage was going to be. And in this case, you can still do a similar thing. So if, if the Braves, you know, coin platform said, Wes and Ishan are going to onboard, they're going to bring $1,000 of, of fees and usage per month. They can have that in their CRM. to Because at the end of the day, you're trying to anticipate usage and revenue, regardless of the, mm -hmm. the project. You want predictable revenue forecasted. Right. They could use those estimates and they could still measure delta uh, after the fact to see how well that's flowing in. Yeah, makes sense. Very cool. I, I'm, I, I was curious because like for us, like it'll be very clearly like our metric will be like, oh, are we seeing usage? What is our churn rate, right? Mm. Um, are people leaving after like the first cohort or the second cohort of users? Um, and even though we're building what will eventually look like a B2B product in terms of selling, it'll end up looking like a B2C product in terms of using, I think. I'm not sure. So mm. it's going to be interesting to see like, okay, how do you, you know, convince a customer 
to buy it? Or how do you convince freelance developers to use it or developers at companies to use it just by themselves without having to make like a deal, um, you know, and then maybe they pay for it with a credit card or whatever. Um, so we're a little bit early and we're still trying to figure that part out. But um, it'll be interesting to, I'll, I'll be, I'll be looking forward to understanding like what our, what our metrics will look like on uh, conversion and usage and like uh, revenue. I mean, revenue is revenue, but like, you know, converting conversion and usage and uh, churn rate and, and how that looks like. Well, one of the things I really liked about the Slack business model that they would take is they would take this um, this bottoms up or kind of ground up approach where they would give away Slack for developers in various pockets of large organizations and they would let developers use it for free. And as it would get adoption, then the salespeople would come in and say, hey, we noticed you guys are using all this amount of, of Slack, you know. If, you, if we sold you an, an enterprise license, then you can consolidate all your usage. You can have visibility and security and all those things. Go talk to your developers. The developers say, we want it. We have to have it. We love it. And it was that kind of organic motion. Is there a feature like that for you guys where you can kind of like work your way into yeah, those I deals? Yeah, that's part of the plan. Um, it's interesting because at the end of the day, we're actually building a crypto protocol. Um, and we'll want, like, we'll be building an SDK. Uh, but we'll, what we really want is everyone to build their own version of the SDK that they want on top of our crypto protocol. So this is where I actually find Web3 go to market really interesting is like building a protocol is the equivalent of building open APIs and, um, in the, and, and the, and the, um, the reference I like to make is when Twitter first started, they actually built an UI for Twitter. And they had APIs and anyone could build, um, anyone could build like, uh, a, a, a UI, right. There was like all these different UIs that people built. Twitter actually bought a couple. And, um, then after a while they were like, we need to own the entire user experience because they were a consumer company that, that, that made money from ads. And I think the whole, like, um, the, the business models back then were not as advanced that today, but I think that was one of the mistakes like that. Twitter made is that it got, it just never grew, right? Like in terms of revenue and terms of um, stock price, like it was sideways for like a decade, right? Until uh, Elon bought it. Um, and I felt, I always felt that like, you know, maybe Twitter made some, now again, maybe business models and technology weren't there yet. But like, for me, I always felt like the more, it was more valuable to be a platform where anyone could build um, UIs on top of the Twitter APIs. And I think that's what crypto protocols actually try to do. As a crypto protocol, what you try to do is you build the protocol and then you need to build, um, in our case, an SDK, but in other cases, a UI, whatever it might be, you need to build an, some sort of interface so that um, people can use your product. But you don't want there to be just one interface, unless, I guess, maybe unless you're an ads business, which um, I'm not as experienced in, so I'm not sure, but I don't necessarily buy. What you really want is you want multiple um, interfaces with your protocol so that every single type of user can be happy with your protocol mm. because all the different types of interfaces um, basically are able to, um, they're, they're able to deal with every single user, every single uh, different type of need that a user has right? Uh, or the different types of cohorts of customers or users you have on your protocol. If you have multiple types of interfaces, you can just, you, the user can pick the best interface 
for their use case. Um, and that's why I think crypto protocols are so powerful. And that's why I really like this new like Web3 go-to-market strategies is because you can do that. Um, so I'm I'm super curious to see like, you know, as we grow, like what actually ends up happening with our protocol and if that kind of vision um, comes true or not. But I think that's like my sense is that's where like why crypto is and, and open source crypto protocols are so powerful. Yes. Yeah, because it's opening up so many different dimensions of value flow. In the advertising model, it's very unidirectional. And in some cases, Google, they maximize that. They figure it out. It's great. But in this new world, you've got a lot of different directions. And so who's pushing value? One one thing that came to mind when you mentioned that was this uh, this DeFi protocol called Liquidy. Have you ever heard of Liquidy in their front ends? I have not. Architecture. There might be something uh, to, to emulate there. They effectively, like, to give folks listening a bit of background, any of these decentralized finance protocols, you know, Uniswap, Compound, Aave, they always have a website you can visit, which is called their app or their front end. And it's mm -hmm. it's, their, it's the easiest way to access the protocol. You can send currency into it. You can, you can then interact with it. You can maybe make a loan or a swap or whatever. So in this case, this uh, similar group called Liquidy, they said they want to open source the front ends and they want to incentivize other people to create those front ends. So in the mechanism, the way it works, because value flows are, are, are so dynamic and they can be so fluid, they actually give people who create a, a different front end a kickback. They give them liquidity token for doing it. It's That's built cool. into the protocol itself. That is very cool. Which makes perfect sense because the protocol needs these people to decentralize and to have better different options. Yeah. So they're actually going as far as they wrote it in the protocol to say, if you do this and we'll give you a, a cut for the users. That's very cool. That's actually something that I had never heard of before. Um, that's like a, I mean, I think what's really cool about crypto is that there's a new, new mechanism of incentivization, right? And hopefully like crypto becomes a commodity where like at the market, the, the financial markets treated or the capital markets treated as more of a commodity and not this high risk product that like, you know, is very volatile. But um, that being aside, I think from like a go to market strategy, I think this is interesting is because now you can, instead of asking your customer to find their customers, right. You mm -hmm. can actually incentivize, you know, people to build stuff for, for, you know, their customers, they still have to find their customers, but there's like an incentivization layer to actually do it right. Instead of just using the status quo. Um, the second thing I think that's interesting is that Uniswap is similar, right? Uniswap is a protocol and anyone can power their own apps with the Uniswap protocol, right? There's a lot of like DeFi companies that is just like a really nice user experience with some features with Uniswap running as the liquidity provider. Um, but liquidity, yeah. and, but Uniswap also has their own uh, UI to as a decentralized exchange. Um, and that's how I think about building a Web3 business, uh, or at least let's say not just a Web3 business, but um, a protocol plus uh, a protocol business, right? Is that you both have your protocol and you have your own interface and you, you know, really you get powerful when everyone else uses your protocol and their interfaces. Yes, that's it. Give other people an opportunity to have an economic advantage, you know, to, mm -hmm. to build their own build their own wealth on your platform. Um, it's funny because in Web 2, we had this big, um, you know, of any successful companies, you know, Snowflake, Databricks, any of these organizations, partnerships and the partner channel was a huge part of the go-to-market. We haven't even talked about that yet today. Yeah. Maybe we'll have some time. Is that 
I mean, you had your marketing team, you had your sales, and you had partnerships. And partnerships were critical just in a similar sense where you would need to fund a partner channel. If they brought business, you would need to give them a portion of the uh, the revenue that was closed. You need to support them. You need to market, evangelize them, whether it was people that would help implement your software or people that would help bring awareness to your software and integrations and things like that. And I think in, to your point in, in, in the Web3 scenario, it's equally critical um, through protocol designs. Uh, I think that in Web3, uh, again, with at least with crypto protocols, partnerships might be like the most important way of, of generating demand or generating revenue than any other way. Unless you're like, again, unless you're like a B2C company and you're using, like if you're a B2C company, I don't think it really matters whether you're crypto or not. Like the go-to-market strategy is like 95% the same. Um, but in these like places where like you're building a protocol and somebody's going to, and people are going to build interfaces on top of your protocol, or they're going to use your protocol in their applications and build this great user experience for their customers, partnerships end up being, um, end up being super important. I agree, especially early on, you know, because when you're going from zero to one, it has to be more hands-on, you know, you can't scale it necessarily until you get, until you get to a certain escape velocity and then you can hopefully, you know, mass market the scenario. But, when you try to figure out product market fit, you're trying to learn. Is there was one VC I spoke with where I was trying to ask about like how to get seed round of funding, and, and her perspective was when she interviews startups for funding, she wants to see that they have met with at least ten prospective customers that um, are willing to pay for their product to have you know product market fit essentially, and that's just like kind of validation. That, like in order to get those ten, you have to have the hands on you know work that you do with many more, but at least ten is your output. Um, well, this was stellar. I think we covered a lot. Um, probably a lot more we could cover too. Um, should we chat about Infura real quick, or do you want to save that for? Yeah, let's let's end with Infura. I would love to do another like GTM part two at some point. Um, but let's yeah. let's end with Infura. Take it away. So this so this is a fun article because this is a company that's one of the largest JSON RPC providers. Basically, I think of them as like a gateway to the Ethereum network. If you're building an application or anything that interacts with Ethereum or major blockchains, you typically don't have that application go to the blockchain directly, uh, like a web browser application, Uniswap or otherwise. Typically, it goes to what's called a JSON RPC provider. There's a couple big ones like Alchemy, Infura, QuickNode. These are all providers, and, and they're basically you know have a, a, a front-end component that your app can talk to, and they have a back-end component that talks directly to, to blockchains. and. Mm -hmm. It is a bit of a centralizing component for blockchains. And, you know, people have always sort of been wary of these for a long time. But for various technical reasons, it just makes the most sense. There's an article released recently through Infura, which is talking about starting to decentralize their infrastructure stack. Uh, and essentially, they're referring to it as federations, uh, creating federations, which I don't know if this means like in the world of liquid staking tokens and Lido. Lido validators are essentially 20 or so operators that are sort of trusted operators. I think Solana has some similarities where it's like a trusted set of nodes that can run. So it's not fully open and decentralized, but it's not just that one company's interest. It's maybe a, a federation of those other mm -hmm. companies and things. So it's like some middle ground. But they're talking about opening up their JSON RPC server to be a little bit less centralized and a little bit more federated. What, what do you think? Do you think that's going to like resound with, with the crypto community? I think so. I mean, uh, one, I always felt like it made sense to build these infrastructure as a service companies because the um, the 
the stuff that these these uh, these people are able to do at scale, like Alchemy and Infura, are actually really cool. And also working with like layer one blockchain APIs is not easy, right? So they're basically a developer tool on top. They're APIs on top of the layer one APIs or the layer two API, whatever. But in general, layer ones. Um, so yeah, it's kind of it's always annoying to see like okay, well, it's not. Uh, you know, you're like decent. You're centralizing something that's decentralized by having like infrastructure as a service um, companies. But at the same time, like the reality is, is unless that the APIs are simple to use, developers are not going to come. Like no one wants to beat their head on how to use something and deal with bugs and issues and open source code gets updated and you didn't hear about it, right? Like you know, API versioning and all of that in at a company like Infura or Alchemy is generally a much better user experience. And regardless of Web 2 or Web 3, generally better user experiences when. I think that's always something to remember that like, if, but you know, I think it's interesting because there's also a decentralized uh, JSON RPC company called Lava Network. Um, actually, I don't know if they're still alive, but I hope they are. They were earlier this year. So I'm just gonna assume that they are. Um, You're right. Yeah, the, yeah. So the reason why I know is because we were at PL uh, at Crypto Econ Lab. We were thinking about like helping them with their uh, incentive design and tokenomics, but I don't know if that you know if that ever went anywhere or if they hired in house for that. Anyway, so I definitely think that there is a path to success for Lava Network and for Infura to progressively decentralize. And I do think in the future, the best companies, the best crypto companies. Again, this is a generalization, so this is not always going to be true. But a lot of the really good ones are going to start out as centralized companies that build decentralized products, um, or they build a, a, a interface on top of a decentralized prog product, get product market fit, make their product amazing, and then progressively decentralize. Because um, we have spoken to so many founders and VCs, and as soon as, as soon as you decentralize, as soon as you have a token, you slow down by 5 to 10x in terms of building product, because you have to deal with legal, you have to deal with token value, you have to do a deal with all of these things that don't necessarily have anything to do with like your product, your product, and it slows down product development. So um, I really like the fact that one, Infura built this great product and got lots of traction, and now they're progressively decentralizing, and they're moving to this federated prog process. And my sense is that they will figure out if it works and if they're able to make it work, they will progressively decentralize more over time. But I don't know. But what do you think? I love it. No, I mean, going to their website here, I'm, I'm seeing one of the first options is to run a node. They're saying this is how you run a node and be a provider for, for the network. And I think that's like the, the hallmark of an organization that's trying to decentralize or trying to bring a network of people in to be those decentralized node operators. Rocket Pool is another great example. Like in the Ethereum validator space, you have Lido, which is very dominant, but it's not as decentralized per se. It's sort of a, a group of approved validators. And then you have Rocket Pool, which is anybody can run a validator node and we want anyone to decentralize. So I think it's healthy forces, but I agree it's, it's, it's hard to decentralize. Um, and so it's like, it's sort of like a, an ideal that you're reaching for over time. And, and, and if you can get there, all the better. It'll just make the protocol more, it'll make the product more resilient in the long term. Yeah, I agree. I know this is a little bit off tangent, but you know, all of this, it's funny, we talk about decentralization, we talk about decentralization. What we really need, though, is like cloud providers decentralized. 
because all these validators, they're all run on AWS and GCP anyway. So like they're decentralized in the sense of who's running the software and where you're connecting to, but it all comes from the same place. So if AWS or GCP or, or Azure or Oracle or whatever decide like, hey, you know, we're not pro Ethereum anymore. Fuck you guys. Like game is over, right? So I would oh, love yeah. to see de decentralization on the cloud provider side um, as well. So um, for companies who are building that, you know, that would, I think, I think, I think, that's, I, agree. I think that's something that we really need, right? Like all the decentralization is really good from this, from a software perspective and, and a node perspective, but also like at some point, um, as you, as you think about decentralization on every layer of the tech stack, eventually we will need to get to the physical hardware needs to be decentralized, but you yes. can't get there until like the other stuff is also decentralized, you know? Well, there was a really good example, and I, I, I'll, tell, I'll give you this last story, and then I have, have to bounce. But um, there, there's a really good example of a um, of a provider uh, based in Europe who was running a lot of uh, these uh, these nodes, basically validator nodes, and they basically told all their users, "We're no longer going to allow this." They were probably like 10% of the Ethereum validator nodes, and it was it was similar to AWS, but it was bare metal hardware. And uh, it was a big to do because they said, "We're not going to participate in this anymore," and so folks had to move other places. But I agree with you. It needs to happen, and the protocol hopefully can write that into its its rules so that it incentivizes people to be solo operators. Yeah, big discussion. Well, this was lovely. Sean, thanks for taking some time, man. Good yeah, chat about GTM. Fun. I feel like I learned a few things. I, I feel like I learned a lot of things <laughs> from, the, from the expert himself. Well, I'm actually looking forward to doing a GTM part two because I think there's a lot here that we did not cover as well. Huh. Yes, yes. It's good content. And it's not there's not as much like material out there yet to learn from this stuff. So we're kind of yeah. figuring it out as we go. It's actually a fun. lot of just like people telling their own experiences and then using like your like common sense logic and you know what you're hearing from your customers to figure it out, which is actually a lot of fun because it's not like, oh, like, you know, you can just take David Sachs's like B2B SaaS handbook and be like here's the playbook go go execute on the pl playbook now but like i feel like you know this is very different we're building it we're building a playbook that's exactly yeah. it it's the new playbook yes, i totally exactly. agree all right man much fun as always all right have an excellent week you too man see ya. let you run cheers <laughs>